Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I just spoke with Greg Siegel about his really fascinating new book, Forensic Media, Reconstructing Accidents in Accelerated Modernity. This came out in 2014 with Duke University Press. So what's so fascinating about this book? Well, what it does is it weaves together a history of media, and by media, I mean kinds of um, instruments, kinds of technologies, specifically that record traces and that help us conceptualize what a trace is, how it is, who makes it and what we do with it with a history of and a changing um, history of accidents, the idea of accidents and how the notion of accidents um, in the modern world has really transformed along with um, modernity and different notions of modernity and notions of speed and risk that go along with that. So what you'll find in the book are case studies um, that range from 19th century technologies developed by Charles Babbage to black boxes, um, recorders of various sorts in airplanes, to technologies that come from automotive testing, um, the sort of the study of crashes and the way that different um, modes of studying car crashes in particular helped shape what what cars look like and how we deal with accidents thereof. The case studies are organized around some critical questions, and I'll just give you some of them now as a way to set the stage before we move to the interview itself. Um, And these are questions that are taken pretty much right from the book. So first, how have devices of recording, representation, and reproduction been employed to scientifically analyze and explain high-speed mishaps? What was the historical impetus for using them in that way? How do certain forensic media rearticulate other older or concurrent media forms, discourses, and applications? How do they inculcate or reinforce a specific ethos of safety or protection? And how have they contributed to a latter-day revision of the notion of progress? So you can hear just from some of the many questions articulated by the book in the book that this is a story that speaks to not just media studies, but also changing notions of progress, of forensics, of safety, and of protection. It's an important book. It's a fascinating book. And I was really, I'm very delighted to talk with Greg about it. So I hope you enjoy. And as ever, thanks very much for listening. I'm here today to talk with Greg Siegel about his new book, Forensic Media. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Greg, and thanks both for a really, really thoughtful, stimulating book and also for making the time to talk with me about it today. Oh, thanks, Carla. Pleasure to be here. So, Greg, let's start by talking a little bit about what brought you to the general field of media studies. How did you come to work in media studies as a professional field? Well, I had done my undergraduate work in philosophy and communication arts, specializing in radio, television, and film at University of Mm -hmm. Wisconsin-Madison. And so I had always had a, a long interest in music, film, and media. But after undergrad, I 
I went to LA to, to work as a musician and journalist, and I did that for several years, but I actually decided I wanted to continue to write about music and media, but from a sort of uh, a deeper and more philosophical and theoretical perspective. So the masochist in me went back to grad school. <laughs> and um, so I went to, did my grad work at uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And I studied media there, and I had just always been fascinated with um, technology, history of technology, philosophy of technology, and trying to understand at that time, I was very interested in sort of the prolifer- proliferation of um, screens, of visual screens. But at the same time, I was starting to think about questions of technology and progress. And that's really where my interest in the book came from. Excellent. And it's, it's really interesting to hear about your background um, in music and as a musician, because as we will get to, I'm sure, by the end of our conversation, sound and the sonic and voicing um, winds up becoming really, really important um, to what's going on in the book. Exactly. Yes. So the book focuses um, in many ways and on many different levels on the media of accidents um, specifically. It's a book called Forensic Media. So how did you come to a focus on accidents um, in the context that you worked on for the book? Well, when I first started thinking about uh, what became of what became the book, I was really struck by in the popular culture and in the institutional culture, the emphasis on sort of progress and technology and the ways in which uh, new media technologies were wrapped up in a kind of rhetoric of, um, if not, well, if not techno-utopianism, then certainly a kind of techno-optimism and maybe even a techno-fetishism. And at the same time, I was thinking, what might be a corrective to some of these dominant ideologies of progress when it came to technology? I started thinking about this really right at, at the time of uh, the Internet boom. And um, it occurred to me that questions of failure and accident and noise um, might be one way, a lens through which to sort of rethink technology and reimagine technology and as I said as a kind of corrective or check on the techno progress myth um, so actually I was reading Virilio and as so many people who start to think about technology and accident almost always start with Virilio and that's that's really what happened to me too and I was reading his book Open Sky and he writes in that book a lot about accidents and I thought well what what would it mean to think of media and technology through the kind of prism of what goes wrong and what kind of history might we get when we do that and what is media's role in that history? And that's really what sort of set me off. Mm-hmm. Thank you. And, and the book, um, as we'll see um, in the course of our conversation, I think really beautifully does all of this stuff. And I mean, it really helps us rethink what progress is and what it could be by integrating attention to um, all of the concepts that you've already mentioned really nicely. So speaking of alreadys um, and thereafters, the book began its life as a dissertation, right? 
Yes, it did. So can you talk um, a little bit about the transformation from dissertation to book? Were there any major um, changes or um, sort of major notable aspects of that process that represented an important shift, either in how the project was built, how it was structured, or in how you were thinking about um, what you were arguing here? Sure, yeah. There actually was a major shift. I, At the time of the dissertation, believe it or not, the the role and the question of forensics was very minimized. Um, in fact, I think I only talked about forensics in the book directly, you know, probably over the course of a few pages. At the time, my focus was just on ways of recording and registering the accident and thinking about it in relation to progress. And I was less interested in, and I had a sort of vague idea of, of, a kind of way in which media were adapted to tell this story, uh, both scientifically, the scientific story of what happens with accidents, what uh, what causes them, and how they unfold, and at the same time, how media are used as vehicles of popular communication to also communicate a particular meaning or understanding of what technological accidents are and um, and how they work. And so I had a kind of vague notion, but from the dissertation to the book, actually the major transformation was how I became fascinated with the question of the forensic and what exactly forensics was and how I could understand what I had already been looking at by going back and thinking about uh, forensic science. And in fact, <laughs> the uh, the book took quite a turn when I did that and and now I would say forensics is probably the, the predominant component of, of the book in terms of philosophically and even historically. That's right. And that's one of the really interesting things about the book is this notion of forensics and allied notions of inscription and the trace and the ways that inscription and the trace kind of uh, finger their ways through not just forensics in the context of the investigation of accidents, but also other contemporary and prior forms of investigation and ways of thinking about traces that really form a kind of foundation from which um, this very modern notion of progress and technology and forensics and media emerges. And one of the really striking things along those lines, at least for me as a historian and someone who's really interested in history and evidence was the way that Carlo Ginsburg's work um, became seemed throughout the book to be really important um, and really interesting, interestingly kind of shaped part of what was going on in, in actually many of the chapters. So would you talk a little bit about that kind of as, as a way to launch out into the book itself? Like was Carlo Ginsburg's work crucial for you from the very beginning of the project or is that something that grew over time? It, it actually was um, very integral to the project, to the book project in particular. I I was looking for a way, trying to describe why I thought this question of going back and thinking about what went wrong or what happened, what really happened with regard to failures and accidents, how that process of tracing backward um, was also tied to these uh, fantasies of of a better more a better world moral and material progress that always seemed to come up either implicitly or explicitly and and I think what Ginsburg allowed me to see was the way in which the the kind of 
detectivist ritual was itself uh, an outgrowth of in, in the sense of the modern detective was itself an outgrowth of a much older, in fact, ancient way of tracking and hunting that already had a notion of the future involved with it. Um, because as Ginsburg points out in that wonderful essay, the, the, the act of sort of backtracking and hunting was, and hunting with traces was, um, practiced as a sort of a cult art. And he talks about the way in which this kind of divining was just a kind of negative image of a sort uh, in terms of telling the future, basically, uh, fortune telling, and that the two predicting the future or prescribing the future and sort of in a sense, quote unquote, predicting the past were two sides of the same coin. And um, as I mentioned in the epilogue in the book, Thomas Huxley also picks up on this notion of this sort of duality and, and his wonderful phrase, retrospective prophecies, which to me is kind of that nodal point between looking back and predicting forward or projecting forward. That's right. And I think um, situating and understanding the accident as, as you put it, a ritual and a process in time um, and sort of using this as a way to rethink temporalities is really, really important, at least in my experience of reading the book. And this is important from the very beginning. So this, I think, really nicely brings us into the introduction. So the book argues, and this is um, laid out in the introduction, so I'm going to just use the words of the introduction now because they're so beautifully clear. It argues that accidents forensics and media are mutually implicated, as you put it, in the origins and also the evolution of a dominant tendency in modern technological thought, discourse, and practice. And this tendency has kind of two branches. On the one hand, it treats forensic knowledge of accident causation as a key to solving the accident, so looking to the past, but at the same time, it treats this knowledge as the source for future improvement on the scales, as you put it here, both of technology and also of civilization. So from the very beginning, we have the accident as this fulcrum of looking to the past and looking to the future in the way that I think you've just described. Now, forms of media are crucial to this. And as we move through the chapters, we're going to move through at least some of the forms of media that you describe, including graphic and photographic and sonic and electronic and digital. And one of the core ideas of the book is the idea of forensic mediation. So for listeners who may not have had a chance to read the book or may not be familiar with this notion, can you maybe start us off by talking a little bit about this notion of forensic mediation um, as it structures what you're arguing here? Sure. Um, The idea here was thinking about uh, a kind of a way of seeing and also a way of knowing and how media, modern media technologies are centrally implicated in that way of seeing and that way of knowing. So when I talk about um, the forensic gaze, I talk about in the 19th century, a way of seeing the crime scene and seeing evidence that um, was basically uh, using different kind of scientific 
thought and scientific instruments in order to to see the accident. With the development of automatic writing technologies, with the development of photography, filmmaking, um, also now computer animation, um, also audio recording, media become a way of registering traces that uh, science finds very valuable. And forensic mediation is basically talking about how media are used to record the accident, an accident that happens in the past, a way of reading the accident in the present moment. That is to say, taking that data, I call it anatomizing the accident or informationalizing the accident. That's probably the better term because what the media do is turn all of that uh, that raw substance into a kind of information that can then be interpreted. And also um, the third moment of forensic mediation is what we were just talking about, which is how do we take that information that has been anatomized and has been informationalized and also uh, narrativized, turned into a kind of story of what happened with the accident? How is that data converted into designing better technologies, supposedly better machines, more efficient machines, safer machines, uh, machines and technologies and technical systems that uh, promise uh, protection, protection in the future. Because, of course, the accident happens in the past. The accident continues to haunt in the present. But there is a kind of uh, dream involved in what I call forensic mediation of taking all of that and turning it into a brighter future. Great. Now, you've mentioned, incidentally, in the course of your answer, the idea of the 19th century. And in fact, the 19th century, as you put it here early in the book, and we see this developed throughout the book, is a key turning point for the history of and with accidents. As you put it here in the introduction, the accident became technologically modern in the 19th century, and this had to do with a number of different kinds of factors, including the rise of certain kinds of um, technologies, uh, a kind of acceleration of mobility, and many other factors that we'll we'll get to as they interweave um, in creating this moment. Now, one of the things that's happening in the 19th century, and this takes us into the first chapter, is the emergence of what you call the forensic engineer. So to kind of bring us into um, this chapter, can you introduce for us this idea of forensic engineer? Um, who is this kind of person, and what's important for us to understand about this figure, to understand uh, the arguments that you're making in this part of the book? Sure. Um Forensic engineer and forensic engineering are actually describe a, a subfield of engineering, and they don't actually get that name, forensic engineering, um, until the 20th century. But what I suggest in the book is that that same impulse that underlies the birth of this field of forensic engineering and techniques of what are now called failure analysis, that that, that desire, that impulse actually originates in the 19th century. And I go back and I look at um, texts and comments from the 19th century, mostly civil engineers who are struggling with why, for instance, a bridge collapsed or what caused a building to collapse and what caused a boiler explosion on a steamboat or a boiler explosion on a train. And 
the way in which that came to be what I consider forensic was by taking a kind of scientific method and applying it to the physical evidence of the disaster. So basically, studying ruins, studying remains, um, and that to me, though it wasn't called it at the time, was itself the kind of the basis for a forensic logic, a forensic way of thinking and talking about accidents. And the 19th century was also key because at the very same time, and I argue that these things are related, the development of forensic science um, with regard to the crime scene is is underway, well underway in the 19th century. And that sort of revolutionized the approach to criminal investigation using forensic tools and technologies and um, modes of analysis to investigate, for instance, murder, uh, a murder scene. Um, And it was a kind of medicalized way of studying scenes and bodies. And so... Forensic science with regard to the crime scene, what and it was called that at the time, but there was this other thing happening with regard to accidents that seemed to me to be quite quite similar um, and analogous. And I talk about the way in which the, the forensic way of seeing and knowing that emerges with the crime scene is also happening at the site of a railroad wreck. Um, and that the the kinds of engineers and the kinds of thought processes and tools they are using and the kinds of questions they are asking are themselves uh, what we would now call forensic-type questions. What was sort of the etiology of the accident in the same way we could talk about the etiology of a disease or what exactly led up to the killing is the same sort of question as what exactly led up to the accident. So that's why the 19th century to me is the moment where these, this constellation of sort of logics and rhetorics and practices and rituals uh, and technological media um, come together in this sort of this dual impulse to, to figure out what happened with regard to a misdeed and figure out what happened with regard um, to a mishap. Right. So there's this transformation, as you have indicated already, in what seeing is, right? You you chart this rise of a forensic gaze in the context of both um, engineering and also medicine, and, and you take us into the consequences of this for how we understand legal history, right? And that's sort of what's happening to the legal system. But there's also a really, really interesting transformation here in terms of what an accident is, right? I I mean, I think this is interesting because readers and listeners um, may take for granted, as I certainly did before reading the book, that we kind of understand what an accident is. But this is, you're really historicizing that notion and showing that, um, at least for me, at this particular moment in the 19th century, because of this transformation and emergence of new kinds of technologies, in particular, um, the railroad, right? You talk about the boiler. There's, there's a concomitant transformation in terms of what an accident is. Um, that's actually really, really 
important. Um, so could you talk maybe a little bit more about the boiler explosion? You call the boiler explosion the original accident of 19th century techno science, and it seems to be this is um, a kind of accident that really exercised the sorts of people who are writing about this in this chapter. So what's the big deal about the boiler explosion? Why should we care? The boiler explosion was... Um a kind of accident that absolutely startled even the experts. The the steamboat and the railroad in the 19th century were extremely complicated technologies. And when something went wrong with them, um, the, the authorities and the experts themselves were often quite baffled. And so um, th- that sort of fact of their bafflement is an important point. But the other important point and why I call it in that uh, Virilio sense, the original, a kind of the original accident of the 19th century, um, was the kind of terror just in the public um, and in the popular imagination that something like the boiler explosion um, precipitated because it happened, first of all, without any warning whatsoever, um, in, an, in a way that seemed completely, utterly random. Um, and it also basically killed and mutilated indiscriminately. So it wasn't, it didn't appear to be uh, the kind of accident that might be tied to particular social classes or social groups, but rather it was in a certain sense egalitarian. So it had these sort of, both it was baffling on the side of, of science and and technical experts and absolutely terrifying and inexplicable on the side of um, the populace. The as far as the question of the transformation of the term accident or the concept of accident, that's that's really interesting because until that time, um, accidents weren't necessarily uh, what we would consider disasters or calamities or catastrophes. In fact, the idea of an accident was really just a kind of um, happening. the The etymology of the term is really to happen. It's only later and only with time that the idea of an accident, which has at its base a kind of casual crossing or a casual uh, intersection, takes on more ominous tones. So now when we talk about accidents, we assume that they're bad. And in fact, if we want to talk about a happening a seemingly random happening or a contingent happening or a chance occurrence that isn't bad, we actually have to say happy accidents, right? right? <laughs> so, so now accidents are, are bad. Um, and that really begins in the 19th century with, uh, with the factory accident, with boiler explosions, with bridge disasters. So in the 19th century as well, there's another kind of transformation, and this takes us into the second chapter on tracings. So this chapter looks at a 19th century imperative that holds that phenomena under investigation. So we've already now spent a chapter thinking about and looking at the technologies of investigation that were really crucial here. But this chapter shows us that the phenomena being investigated should have their own inscriptions. And according to some of the people you're writing about here, they should originate their own tracing. So it's this really interesting context looking at um, sort of tracing by a machine or tracing by a phenomenon. And one of the really 
important examples that you talk about in this chapter, really the kind of the fulcrum um, of this chapter in many ways, is Charles Babbage's self-registering apparatus for railroad trains. So can you maybe open up what you take to be so important about what's happening in this chapter by opening up Charles Babbage's machine? What is this and what's so important about this machine for laying the foundations um, for how you're understanding and thinking about the history of tracing in this period? Sure. Um, the, the time I'm looking at in the 19th century was a time when what was called the graphic method was um, being investigated by many, many um, technologists and scientists, probably most famously uh, Etienne-Jules Marais, who was using um, machines and figuring out how to trace the movement of animal bodies, of human bodies, by taking automatic machines and affixing them to bodies and then having those machines and the pens in those machines write down automatically uh, uh, tracing those movements. And, and Murray believed that this graphic method could be used to study and understand motion itself and all kinds of motion. Babbage was really interesting because he took this idea of the graphic method in a way that hadn't yet been um, used, and that was to, to imagine how the graphic method and these machines that automatically trace movement could be used to under, understand an accident. And he actually built a device with many mechanical pens that could be affixed, and he actually did this. He affixed it to the underside of a railroad carriage, and he ran his own tests to make sure that these different pens could trace different aspects of, or what he called parameters, of the train's movement. So they could measure certain kinds of shake, uh, they could measure certain kinds of um, motions, and in doing this, he thought, well... This could be really wonderful if we needed information about what caused an accident and we were completely um, baffled. So the machine that he built, the self-registering apparatus, actually never went into mass production. It was really only something he himself built and tested. But the what what I thought so interesting about Babbage was, and, and the why, why I think this is such a crystallizing moment for what I'm talking about, is this device built in 1839 is the first attempt uh, to take this kind of method and this technology and apply it to accidents. Not, not sort of the physiologies of living beings, but rather the kind of catastrophic endings of mechanical things. And so that, to me, was a really important moment. And it's interesting, just from a historical point, and I'm sure the reasons for this are quite overdetermined, and I've never really come up with a single good reason, but it doesn't get developed. Now, I talk in the chapter about uh, the kind of pushback he got. Um, Nobody thought it would be that useful. The railroad industry had a sort of vested interest in not advertising the fact of accidents or um, really looking too hard at their cause in a certain sense. So 
the machine itself never was widely distributed, but it does come back in the 20th century in the form of, and I'm sure we'll talk about this in the form of the black box flight recorder. Um, but, but that moment in the late 1830s was so important because it took this forensic logic and this forensic tool and applied it to mechanical failures. I think there's a super cool opportunity here in the future to think about this um, in concert with the kinds of inscriptions that are emerging roughly contemporaneously um, to record earthquakes. Like there's a really interesting overlap here between like recent literature on earthquake traces and earthquake technologies and um, the kinds of accident uh, sort of mechanical traces that you're writing about here. So just kind of incidentally, I would go to that panel. (laughs) No, absolutely. And I do, I do mention the seismograph and the lie detector, but I, I do give it short shrift, I think, in the end, because there is that same impulse with regard to sort of natural disasters. Um, and, and I'm sure that, it, yeah, that, that history is informing Babbage's thinking, too, I'm, I'm quite sure. So you talk in this chapter, before we move on um, to the black box, about you know, other kinds of instruments, like you just mentioned, um, that are emerging, including something called a phone autograph. Um, so, and the context in which these um, experiments with instrumentality um, are being conducted is a context um, where you're talking about something called the technological sublime. Now, you talk about the technological sublime, and specifically, you draw our attention to two ideas, um, two ideologies here that um, you're demonstrating are really important for understanding what's going on. And this is the idea of the triumph of reason and also the ideology of progress. Now, since we started the conversation talking about how important the notion of progress was for how you were thinking about um, you know, this whole set of topics, can you talk a little bit about what's important about this idea of the triumph of reason and the ideology of progress in understanding what's happening here? Sure. Um, so in this section, I, I talk about uh, the Kantian notion of the sublime, and I talk about this idea that ha- that actually goes back to Burke, but where human beings are confronted with something that is awful. Um, and in a certain way, or at least immediately inexplicable, and but also overwhelming. And so both Burke and Kant talk about this, um, this experience with nature, and it can be with astounding size, like when one peers at the stars or thinks about the cosmos. Um, it can be an encounter with, like, the raw elements of nature. So a hurricane, a tornado, um, a typhoon, an earthquake. And they both talk about how human reason, how the mind has at least initially difficulty with, with this encounter. It's terrifying. Um, it's discombobulating. It's confusing. And one is left with nothing but a sort of blank or, or dumb horror. But the way Kant talks about the sublime is that reason in a way comes to the rescue because reason is initially cowed according to Kant. Um, and then sort of after a moment, uh, sort of gets a hold of itself and comes back and says, actually this happening is quite explicable. This is, this 
if I can't explain it right now, it at least is potentially explainable. And so that reason comes in and sort of saves the day. Um, and the subject is sort of put back upright and um, everything is able to, to proceed along. And so for Kant, this investment in reason that sort of comes in in the third act and, and saves the day seemed to me very much a kind of template or metaphor for a way of thinking about what happens when we're confronted with mechanical or technological accidents and failures. So that the dream embodied in something like Babbage's black uh, apparatus, what would become the black box, was okay, we're, we're confronted with a terrible accident. But then science and technology, because we've actually written the accident and written it automatically, can be studied. And through our intellect, through the powers of reason, we can analyze this data positively. And we can then use that data to build safer trains and safer railroads in the future. So in that sense, the idea that progress would come to our rescue, excuse me, that reason would come to our rescue and lead to, to, uh, to progress was, was the analog I was sort of looking at in that, that conversation. Awesome. Thank you um, for clarifying that for us. So as we move from uh, the triumph of reason, the ideology of progress onward, we move to this super duper fascinating chapter on black boxes. So let's let's get right to it. Now chapter three looks at the black box as both a symbol and also as a technology. As you set the stage here, um, you bring us into the history of this term. Um, the, the term black box gained currency, as you put it, shortly after World War II, and it became known in a range of different cultural registers um, and kinds of media as a vehicle for doing, among other things, depositing and delivering cryptic messages. Um, and you talk about some kind of prototypical um, figures of a black box, including the photographic camera. Um, and we're going to get to the photographic camera um, in a little bit, and also um, the box of Marconi. So as an Italian-American, shout out, <laughs> shout out to Marconi. He's been right. one of the people. So you then bring us into the kinds of black boxes or the kinds of black box technology um, that modern readers might be most familiar with, and these are the technologies of the flight data recorder and the cockpit voice recorder. And this is super, super fascinating. So what I'm going to do is pretty much um, ask you to kind of just open up these technologies for us. So there are two um, flight recorders in particular that stand out as really um, crucial moments in the history of the development of this technology. One of them is the Ryan flight recorder. Now, this is something that's entirely mechanical. It's built for data indestructibility, and it is an important moment, um, a touchstone in this history. So could you talk for us about this particular technology? What's important and crucial about this? Ryan flight recorder um, for us to understand. Sure. Um, the, the Ryan flight recorder was uh, really important in the history of, of flight recorders for really one reason, and that was because Ryan had the idea uh, and recognized how important it would be to make sure that the tracings themselves would be preserved. 
And so he took his automatic writing machine, which was a kind of latter-day instantiation of Babbage's apparatus, and he put it through a whole uh, crazy battery of tests, um, subjected it to all kinds of pressures, subjected it to frigid cold, subjected it to extreme heat. And he was, of course, thinking about all the different uh, situations in which uh, a plane might crash, right? And what the the media technology and the data inscribed in the medium might be exposed to. So uh, obviously explosions and if a plane were to crash um, in an Arctic region, if the plane were to be, and the black box with it to be submerged and, and fall to the ocean bottom. So Ryan foresaw very clearly um, after World War II the importance, if if we were going to learn anything about these accidents, of making sure that the medium was, I guess we would call it now, robust, but under the most radical and extreme circumstances. So that was really his um, contribution to, to the evolution of the flight recorder. Great. And so this is really important because this is one point where you're showing us the historical specificity and the historical emergence of one of the aspects of the black box, right, the flight recorder that we take for granted, right, the fact that it's supposed to survive and it's supposed to permanently um, record data and information in the in the um, case of an accident. But there's another um, aspect of flight recorders that we take for granted that's also shown here to be very historically specific and emergent at a particular point um, in the history of this chapter. And that's the idea that the flight recorder is somehow going to record the voice, um, the voice of the crew, the voice of the pilot and the co-pilot. And you situate the emergence of this technology very importantly within David Warren's device for recording the voices of pilot and co-pilot. I mean, this is this also is a really important touchstone in the history of the emergence of flight recorder technology. So what's so important about David Warren's machine? Yeah, absolutely. Um, before talking about that, I just thought when you were talking about um, this particular moment and how we take for granted now the indestructibility of the black box, there's all kinds of funny jokes now we have where, well, if they build the black box and it's so indestructible, why can't they build the plane out of the same material. So we get a lot of humor about uh, the fact that we take for granted the indestructibility of, of the black box now. But uh, as far as the um, voice recording, yes, this too emerges uh, um, across the world in Australia after the, again, after the Second World War in the 1950s. And Warren was an Australian chemist um, who was designing and rocket fuels. But at the time, there was a series of crashes of uh, commuter planes that was plaguing um, the sort of the popular imagination and also baffling scientific experts. And Warren decided um, that the idea of recording what the cockpits say to each other, the sort of the doomed cockpits uh, as the plane is going down or as the plane is failing, right up to the moment of impact, might be of uh, use for future aircraft designers because their conversations, um, what they say to each other about what's happening, could help explain um, what went wrong. So Warren was really savvy in recognizing that the pilots uh, themselves, as they're going through the experience, that that information might be useful. 
his concern at the time was um, with privacy. He recognized that this would be a potential or could be seen as an attempt, uh, uh, a potential violation of the pilot's privacy, their right to privacy. Um, so the way he devised this device was that if there were not an accident, that the device would simply continuously record over the old uh, voices so that on any routine flight, the pilot's conversation would not survive. Only, ironically, when the plane itself didn't survive, would the data survive? Because at that point, the the machine would be able to record at least a few minutes, the last few minutes of the aircraft's uh, flight. Right. And this is also a really crucial moment, as you um, indicate in the book, because this is the first of these devices that was conceived. And if let me know if I'm getting this wrong. But it was conceived as a permanent um, piece of aircraft equipment. Right. So there's a whole history of attempts prior to this to integrate um, pieces of equipment that might be functionally analogous to this um, into different models of airplanes. And a lot of those are unsuccessful. And, and here we have something conceived of as a permanent piece piece of that equipment, which is, um, again, really important for this larger history of permanence and ideas of permanence that the book is also developing in concert with this, um, developing this idea of forensic media. So you've mentioned um, the voice, right? And, and this is something that I think we talked about also at the very beginning. This is an extraordinarily important and moving, actually, chapter, in part because of, um, at the end of it, the treatment that you give to the voice. Um, so it's the voice not only of the plane itself, and you talk here, and I'll just mark this for listeners, um, you talk here about the importance of noise and notions of noise as um, being part of the signal. Right, being part of what's listened for when these um, flight recorders are listened to in cases of an accident. And so there's a kind of voicing of the accident in a way, but there's also the human voice. And the whole last part of the chapter um, really takes us into this idea of last words and, and what it means to record and transcribe have and then have access to and listen to the last words um, in the context of an accident and beyond. So could you speak a little bit to what's going on in this last part of the chapter to us, this idea of last words, transcribing and listening to them. And for you, what's important or what's crucial um, about this phenomenon as part of the larger constellation of issues you're talking about? Sure. Um, the, to the first point you made, the the question of noise was really interesting because I, I talk in the chapter about, I, I talk about cybernetic theory and the way in which noise is something always in communication theory and in information theory, that which is to be eliminated. And it occurred to me, um, and I was quite fascinated by, and I listened to many cockpit voice recordings myself, um, the way in which the noises, the air airplanes noises or other noises that are happening in the cockpit or in the cabin themselves were seized on by experts as information as to to what happened to the to the plane um but in terms of the voices and the question of last words yeah i think this was in a way by the way this was actually the last section of the book <laughs> that i wrote so the, the section called last words was actually the the last word in the book and it seemed to me a fitting way to to end the book even though it's right in the middle of it um 
the the idea of the pathos associated with last words actually goes back to something Edison had thought about when he was thinking about the phonograph. So Edison originally conceived of the phonograph as basically a dictation device. And one of the things he thought would be interesting would be the words of family members who were no longer with us. So grandpa or grandma would talk into the phonograph and then their descendants and their relatives would be able, after they were gone, to listen to their, their voices and be in touch with, um, with their souls, in effect, right? To still have some sort of communion with their persons. And any of us who've had friends or family member who's left recordings on our voicemail or who have audio recordings of uh, beloved persons who are no longer here can certainly relate to this. Um, the idea that when you hear the voice on a recording, particularly of the voice of someone who's dead, um, there is something quite remarkable and uncanny and unsettling and fantastic about that. And Edison, at, from the very beginning, recognized this. So what I was looking at with regard to the black box was, on the one hand, these last words are analyzed by um, the authorities and the experts, again, to tell, to tell them or to give them some clue as to what went wrong. But at the same time, this is the moment when so much human uh, emotion and communication comes through. So sometimes last words aren't even uh, words. They're, as we might expect, screams or um, other kinds of sort of uh, um, sounds and um, vocalizations. Um, and they are also, um, in very rare circumstances, actually messages, messages, individual personal messages. So I talk in that section about how um, sometimes when the pilot knows that he or she is is almost certainly or certainly going to die, they actually take the, the black box, which is, according to aviation norms, supposed to be ignored. You are never, as a pilot, supposed to basically remark on or, or even show that you are aware of the fact that you're being recorded. But sometimes um, in these rare cases, the black box gets recognized directly and pilots will use this to communicate to loved ones, um, knowing that they are going to be the few, among the few people actually able to hear the recordings because recordings in the United States are not circulated. Um, they are listened to only by experts. And then they are also in certain circumstances made available to the family members, but that's it. So there are cases where um, pilots are saying goodbye to loved ones. The other thing that's the other side of this is the desire of family members to hear the recordings, right? It, we shouldn't just take for granted the fact that people want to hear this. Uh, that fact, I think, is actually really startling. And in a lot of accounts, when when the relatives of plane crash victims, for instance, are interviewed, they talk about their desire. They really want to hear the um, if if their relatives are the pilots, they want to hear those tapes. And sometimes even they they hope that if they hear the tapes, they'll be able to hear their relatives who are just ordinary passengers. So 
So I talk about a 1996 value jack crash where um, survivors, uh, the the victims' family members, um, want to hear the tapes, even though they their relatives weren't the pilots, but they're hoping somehow they can actually hear the voices of the passengers. And to me, this was uh, this is just a kind of really remarkable and unsettling moment and also a very very human and pathetic moment it's it's fascinating it's moving and i think one of the things um at the very end of that chapter that also really stuck with me is you're mentioning at least one case where someone uh, is singing a children's lullaby right as the is happening it's just extraordinarily moving um so thank you in particular for that chapter Sure. So as we move into um, the final body chapter, we move into a context that is also extraordinarily rich, and we'll just have a little bit of time to start exploring what's an extraordinarily um, fascinating landscape here that you're bringing us. So in this chapter, you bring us into a shift in not just how um, automobile accidents are conceptualized in terms of blame and responsibility, but also a shift that goes along with this in terms of um, how uh, experiments are being done and how media are being used to record these experiments and thus transform even further the notion of what accidents are, how they are, where they are, who they, who is responsible for them. So in the early 20th century years of automobiles, accidents are largely blamed on human error. And you, you take us into this in the beginning of the chapter. This is important in part because because of the fact that these road accidents are caused by human error and because humans are in principle perfectible beings, right, as you put it mm-hmm. here, road accidents thus are potentially um, eliminable or able to be eliminated. Mm-hmm. And this transforms in the middle of the century and by the early 1950s, this really changes. Thanks, to, thanks largely to sort of medically oriented investigations, the blame for accidents is shifted from the human operator to the automobile itself. And there are a series of investigations and experiments you bring us into that are really um, sort of uh, concretizing this shift and helping to bring about this shift. Some of these experiments are happening at Cornell. Um, there are rocket sled experiments um, that are really important. Full-scale crash testing begins in 1955. Now, there's a lot we could talk about in the context of these experiments, but in terms of media studies, one of the really important transformations that's happening here is the use of a high-speed camera. So this becomes a history of camera technology and photography and high-speed photography in particular um, alongside this transformation in accidents. So could you bring us into what you take to be um, kind of the most important parts of of what's going on in this chapter by talking a little bit about the importance of this camera? What's so important about a high-speed camera to what's going on here? Sure. Um, as you as you point out in the, the the first half of the 20th century, the dominant discourse about auto accidents was focused on the so-called reckless driver, and blame was always um, imputed to the to a kind of moral and or sort of practical or technical deficiency in the human operator. And as you also mentioned, it, basically beginning in the 19. 19- 30s and certainly by the 1940s and into the 1950s, a bunch of medical professionals who have been treating um, car crash victims for a long time 
are starting to really question this idea of the the reckless driver and 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 is there really nothing we can do other than sort of morally and technically reform the human operator and they start thinking about safety and and building a car that can be safer and the camera becomes really really important because it sort of demonstrates that, yes, in fact, there is a kind of moment, a kind of window in time that is available within sort of the the crash itself to make um, crashes survivable. And so the camera shows actually what happens. These high-speed cameras show what happens throughout the course of a car crash. Now, at the time, before the the high-speed cameras were used, in the 1950s, people hadn't thought much about the kind of de- what I call the destructive split second, that that instant in which the the deadly part of the crash takes place. People thought of that as pretty much opaque and so fast that there was nothing that can be done. What the cameras revealed was that, in fact, this instant was an interval. And there was a moment from the time that the car hit some external object, say another car or a wall or some kind of impediment. And the time when the human, him or herself, actually was injured. So it the camera showed that there was a kind of space, a space, a, a potential zone of safety that could be manipulated somehow. Because there was the first crash, the crash of the machine and some external object, but that did nothing to the human. The the part that actually harmed or killed was when the human crashed into the steering column or crashed into the dashboard or actually went before seatbelts were used, went through the dashboard quite often, actually was ejected through the dashboard, uh, excuse me, through the windshield above the dashboard. So that moment was now opened up thanks to high-speed cinematography, and it showed that we could actually cushion somehow cushion the driver and the passengers against the destructive blows that um, that were actually mutilating them or killing them. And so the seatbelt became really the proof that the seatbelt could actually work. The proof of the seatbelt's efficacy was shown thanks to high-speed cinematography, among other tests. Um, the idea that Steering wheels should be designed so they they don't have the capacity to basically impale people. Um, The idea of making sure that windshields were equipped with safety glass, Um, all kinds of cushioning and different what what are called passive restraints could be used so that... Now the view was, well, accidents, we might not be able to eliminate them. We might not ever be able to perfect the human being, that accidents are going to continue to happen. The question now was, medically, what can we do to lessen, to diminish the effects of accidents? And that is a huge transformation. And to me, the the camera operates here as a forensic device and it's different in terms of the other forensic devices i look at because those are concerned with real accidents the camera that we're talking about here was actually a forensic tool to study quote unquote fake accidents right staged accidents accidents on purpose so um 
that was, I think, the key moment to show that the destructive part of the accident, there was a kind of window of opportunity in which safety could sort of be inserted. Great. And the book, as it continues on to an epilogue, and we won't have um, much time to get into this, but I just want to kind of register for listeners some of what's um, going on here that's really interesting. The book continues in the epilogue to really um, uh, keep paying very careful attention to the ways that this history of accidents and notions of the accident is very much a history of media by taking us from this context of high-speed photography, where photography is used to capture these experimental accidents and sort of reenactments to the context where photography is used um, as a forensic device to study actual accidents, right, as they um, have unfolded. And, And you bring us into the idea of photography also as capturing um, unnes- quote, right, unnecessary data or sort of the kind of excess of um, the photographic image that becomes really, really important for um, bringing this history of traces and what it is to investigate traces um, really to its conclusion um, as the book comes to its conclusion. And we've talked already a little bit about the importance of Carlo Ginsberg's work, which um, recurs here in the Apple as well as this idea of um, this kind of retrospective prophecy, right, um, in the work mm-hmm. of Thomas Huxley and Huell and others, and this idea of paleoetiology. Yes. So, <laughs> so for listeners who are particularly interested in, in these ideas, the epilogue, I think, really beautifully um, brings these to a close and also um, helps point us forward. Oh, thanks. Yes. Um, the the the, the epilogue really brings back, as you say, the, the idea of Ginsburg and, and sort of closes that circle. It also really brings back the question of noise, but now in a visual, a visual register. So the, the idea I was trying to get at here was the problem with interpreting the data, which, which comes at various points throughout the book, but I think is maybe most pointed in the epilogue, where I talk about the use of photographs and this question of sort of overmuchness or too muchness, um, this optical profusion that, that can be uh, really a concern for investigators, forensic investigators. What, what is weed and what is chaff? What is information and what is noise when it comes to analyzing the mediated tracings of accidents. And so that's that's really what that epilogue is trying to get at. So, Greg, um, now that we're at the conclusion of the book and the conclusion of our interview, we're certainly not at the conclusion of the kinds of things that we could talk about if we had another couple of hours. It's an extraordinarily rich study. Given that, though, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but um, that you'd like to mention for listeners? Well, I think the only thing um, that we didn't talk about, and we didn't talk about it because it's not in the book, and but I, and I'm very ambivalent about it, that it's not in the book, but I didn't get a much of a chance to really talk about the use of computer um, reconstructions and computer simulations, and, and this seems like uh, a logical place for the work to go, um, because it really brings up a lot of new questions um, as to what it means to actually register and record an accident. So now there are um, attempts to recreate the accident, to take all the data from an accident and to basically 
visualize it using um, computer data. And it gets into a lot of thorny questions having to do with the difference between sort of representation and simulation that I didn't get a chance to go into in the book. And it also sort of complicates, I think, in interesting ways, the idea of retrospective prophecy, of what what does it mean to sort of look backward and look forward? Because, of course, a computer simulation is actually um, an image or a set of images, a moving image of something that was completely constructed from non-visual or not at least not computer visualized data. So whether or not that simulation is actually a representation or a complete sort of fabrication is really an interesting question. And it's a question that is coming up today in the courts and what constitutes what is in legal parlance is known as demonstrative evidence, like say a photograph or um, some kind of mechanical uh, etching or something like that versus what is in fact um, sort of fabricated and uh, just a kind of virtual representation. So that was the only thing I've been thinking about recently. And I'm working on an anthology with a colleague um, at Duke, Jules Oldendahl, on for other ideas of forensic mediation, and I'm working on uh, an essay that deals with computer simulation right now. But that is that is another important uh, sort of articulation of of the book that I didn't get a chance to explore fully in the book. Excellent. And this actually brings us um, really nicely to what my final question was going to be, which is um, basically, what are you working on now? So uh, in addition to this um, anthology and the essay that you're writing about, is this is this mostly what is occupying and inspiring you right now? and Or is there anything else that you're working on that's um, particularly exercising and engaging you? I'm actually, um, th- this will probably conclude my work with forensics and accidents per se, but I've moved on and I'm working on a second book now that deals with the history and culture and technology of emergency communication. And um, so not, not the concept of the accident, but rather the idea of warning, the idea of alarm, and thinking about the ways in which tools and technical systems and media have been used to communicate emergencies um, across cultures and across time. And at the same time, and here's the the new book's pivot, thinking about the ways in which media technologies uh, and systems have themselves precipitated uh, or constituted emergencies. So I'm thinking a lot about now um, electromagnetic radiation and thinking about um, something as sort of obvious as cell phone uh, and sort of the fears and anxieties surrounding cell phone usage, um, but also thinking about um, infrasonic noises and other kinds of electromagnetic and media environmental disturbances um, as themselves kinds of emergencies. So that's really what the new work is concerning. Great. So from one topic of extraordinary um, timeliness and public uh, relevance to another topic of extraordinarily uh, timely and publicly interesting material. Well, best of luck with that, Greg. And um, thank you so much for making time to talk with me about the book. It's really been a pleasure. Oh, thanks, Carla. It's been my pleasure. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.